Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The first contacts between the mainland Greeks and the Persians occurred during the reign of Cyrus. As the empire expanded rapidly westwards, the Greeks of Ionia in Asia Minor sent emissaries to Sparta requesting support against the new power. The Spartans responded by sending an ambassador to Cyrus, who warned him against committing any aggression against the Ionian Greeks. The great king replied by incredulously asking who and how many in number these Spartans were who made this declaration. After this moment of mutual incomprehension, relations between the mainland Greeks and the Persians steadily grew. For a generation, both sides managed to avoid conflict. Persians annexed the city-states of Ionia without any response from the mainland Greeks. In 510 BCE, Hippias, the tyrant of Athens, after being overthrown by a revolt in the city and a Spartan invasion, took refuge in the court of great King Darius. Hippias inaugurated a long tradition of Greek political exiles seeking and finding sanctuary in Persia. The turning point in Greek-Persian relations came with the outbreak of a great revolt by the Ionian Greeks in 499 BCE. This uprising was sparked by Ionian dissatisfaction with the Greek tyrants whom the Persians had appointed to rule over them. The Ionian rebels begged for help from the mainland city-states of Eritrea and Athens. The new democratic regime in Athens found good reasons to support the Ionians. The Persians were, after all, sheltering Hippias, who was undoubtedly planning a return to power. In addition, the Athenians regarded the Ionian Greeks as close kin. Many of the Ionian city-states had been founded by colonists from Athens. The Athenian assembly agreed to send 20 warships to Ionia. This force was joined by five warships from Eritrea. The Ionian revolt initially went well. The rebels, along with their Athenian and Eritrean allies, marched on the city of Sardis, the seat of the Persian satrap of Ionia, captured and burned it. After this, the rebellions spread across all of Asia Minor, with non-Greek peoples like the Carians joining the Ionians. Great King Darius responded by sending no less than three armies, each commanded by one of his sons-in-law, to crush the revolt. However, one of these armies was ambushed and wiped out by the Carians at the Battle of Pedasus in 496 BCE. After the Battle of Pedasus, only the second major defeat ever suffered by the Persians, Great King Darius made subduing the Ionian revolt his chief priority. His generals summoned troops from Persia and battle squadrons of the Imperial Navy from Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Egypt. In 494 BCE, the Persians launched a land and sea offensive against the heart of the rebellion, the city-state of Miletus. At the Battle of Lade, Persian navy destroyed the Ionian fleet. Lade demonstrated not just the Persians' naval strength, but also their mastery of subterfuge and diplomatic warfare. The defeat of the rebels was sealed by the defection of the Greeks of Samos, whom the Persians had convinced to change sides. The Battle of Lade proved to be decisive. Following it, 
the Persians subjugated Ionia and the rest of Asia Minor. To placate the Ionians, the Persians did not reinstate the tyrants, instead permitting the city-states to establish democratic governments. But great King Darius never forgot that Athens and Eritrea had aided the Ionian rebels. Herodotus writes that he shot an arrow into the sky and called on God to grant him vengeance against Athens. The king then ordered a slave to say to him three times whenever his dinner was served, Master, remember the Athenians. The Persians, though, were not driven by revenge or by dreams of world conquest. They had practical reasons for seeking to settle scores with the mainland Greeks. From their perspective, Athenian and Eritrean support for the rebels was unprovoked aggression. As long as the mainland Greeks had a free hand to intervene in Asia Minor, the Persian Empire would never have a firm grip on the region. Therefore, sound strategic reasons, as well as concerns about imperial security, now drove Darius and his servants to prepare for the first Persian invasion of Greece. This invasion was put into motion in the spring of 490 BCE, when squadrons of the Imperial Navy left their bases in Phoenicia and sailed to the coast of Asia Minor. There they took aboard an army commanded by two generals, Datis and Artaphernes, and accompanied by the Athenian tyrant Hippias. Herodotus tells us that the Persian fleet numbered 600 warships and horse transports. Unfortunately, the historian does not disclose the strength of the army. Modern scholars have estimated it at 24,000 men, including 1,000 cavalry, based on the size of the fleet. Such a force would have been too small for the complete conquest and occupation of mainland Greece. Great King Darius and his generals were planning a punitive expedition aimed at Eritrea and Athens. The fleet set out across the Aegean. It first subdued the great Cycladic island of Naxos, then it proceeded to Greece itself and made landfall on the southern tip of the island of Euboea, on which was located the city-state of Eritrea. Besieged in their city, the Eritreans resisted bravely for six days. On the seventh, a traitor opened the gates to the enemy. Following great King Darius's instructions, the Persians sacked Eritrea, burned its temples, and enslaved its people. They then crossed the narrow Euripus Strait and landed in Attica, the territory of Athens, on a plain called Marathon. Hippias had advised the Persian generals to disembark their army there because it was just 40 kilometers from Athens and, more importantly, it was excellent ground for cavalry. Within hours of learning of the Persian landing, the Athenians took the brave decision to mobilize their entire hoplite phalanx and march to Marathon. They were convinced to do so by the statesman and strategos Miltiades. At the same time, the Athenians dispatched a messenger, named by Herodotus as Phaedipides, to Sparta to beseech its aid. Phaedipides reached Sparta the day after setting out from Athens. The Spartans agreed to send out their whole army. However, there was a catch. They could not do so immediately, because they were then observing the religious festival called the Carnea. They would need to wait until the festival was over before they could take up arms or they would incur the wrath of the gods. Some modern scholars have interpreted the Spartans' reply as an expedient excuse to avoid facing the Persians. This interpretation is belied by the fact that the Spartans were, even by ancient Greek standards, a particularly religious people. 
similar scruples would prevent them from going to war down to the 4th century BCE. Furthermore, when the Spartans did finally go to the aid of Athens, they went with great speed, reaching Marathon in just three days. The Athenians were therefore facing the Persians alone, except for one exception, the tiny polis of Plataea, which had been an Athenian ally for 30 years, sent its entire army to Marathon. Once again, Herodotus frustratingly does not tell us the numbers involved. The best modern calculations place the Athenians at 10,000, the Plataeans at 1,000. The Greek allies took a position in the hills that ringed Marathon. A prolonged stalemate of several days then ensued. The Persians did not wish to grapple with the Greeks in the hills. The Athenians and Plataeans did not want to go down into the plain and face the enemy horsemen. At last, the Persians assembled their army and made for one of the exits leading out of the plain. To stop them, the Greek allies came down from the hills and formed up their phalanx. The Persian army extended across the entire plain, from the hills to the seashore. Datis and Artaphernes placed their best troops, the Persian and Saka contingents, in the center of their line. Cavalry were probably on the wings, standard operating procedure in ancient warfare. The Greeks matched the Persian deployment, but because they were outnumbered two to one, the enemy line threatened to overlap them. Their solution, possibly hit upon by Miltiades, although Herodotus does not say, was to strengthen their flanks at the expense of thinning out their center. This was probably done by having fewer than eight ranks in the middle of the phalanx and eight or even more on its wings. The Greeks confronted another, even more serious tactical problem. An ancient archer could shoot six to twelve arrows a minute for as long as his strength and his supply of arrows lasted. Since the Persian army could have had as many as 20,000 archers, it could fill the air with 120,000 to 240,000 arrows each minute. The Athenians and Plataeans had never faced such a storm of arrows. Their solution was both simple and brilliant. They ran. Herodotus insists three times that the Athenian and Plataean hopelites went at their enemies on the double or at the run, even though the initial distance separating the armies was eight stadia, or 1,600 meters. Modern experts once completely dismissed this detail of Herodotus's account, claiming it would have been impossible for fully equipped hoplites to run any significant distance without becoming exhausted. But in 1973, researchers at Pennsylvania State University put undergraduate physical education majors in replica hoplite panoply and had them simulate the run at Marathon. They discovered that their ersatz hoplites could run for 200 meters while still preserving the strength and endurance to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. 200 meters also happens to be the effective range of ancient archers. In other words, the distance in which their arrows would begin inflicting serious casualties. As a result, most historians and classicists now conclude that the Athenians and Plataeans accelerated into a running charge as soon as they began taking damaging hits from the Persian bowmen. In doing so, they managed to cross the lethal zone of the arrow storm in less than two minutes and crash headlong into the enemy. The impact of the Greek hoplites must have been tremendous. The Persians had never experienced anything like it before. On the wings, the hoplites bowled over their more lightly armored and armed enemies, quickly putting them to flight. In the center, 
The Athenians at first did not do so well, as the crack Persian and Saka troops managed to fight their way through the thinner phalanx there. But the victorious Greek wings then turned inward and fell on them, cutting them to pieces. The Greeks pursued their enemies all the way to the shore, spearing everyone they could catch. The surviving Persians desperately scrambled onto their waiting ships and fled out to sea. The Battle of Marathon was the first demonstration of how the Persians could not resist the momentum and impact of the Hoplite charge. The losses were entirely one-sided. 6,400 Persians were killed, as opposed to 192 Athenians and 11 Plataeans. When the Spartans finally arrived and learned what had happened, they rushed to the battlefield to look upon the corpses of the dreaded Persians, then departed again, praising the Athenians and their achievement. The victory of Marathon would redound to the Athenians' everlasting glory, for as long as they lived, the Marathonomachoi, the veterans of Marathon, whenever they wished to remind anyone that they had taken part in the battle, had only to say, We ran. And when the great Aeschylus, the father of Greek tragedy, came to write his own epitaph, he chose to commemorate not his plays, but the day he donned his helmet and armor, picked up his shield and spear, and charged headlong with his kith and kin at the barbarians. Beneath this stone, he wrote, lies Aeschylus, son of Euphorion the Athenian, who perished in the wheat-bearing land of Gela. Of his noble prowess the grove of Marathon can speak, and the long-haired Persian knows it well. Marathon was certainly a humiliation for the Persians, but in military terms it was insignificant, a minor setback on the periphery of their empire. After it, great King Darius became determined to deal with the mainland Greeks once and for all. This time, he would not dispatch a mere punitive expedition. Instead, he would personally lead the whole might of his empire on both land and sea. But before he could set out, he died in 487 BCE. His son and successor Xerxes took up his father's ambition and design. First, though, he had to suppress a serious rebellion in Egypt, as well as unrest in Judea and Babylonia. Preparations for the conquest of Greece then took a further three years. At last, in the spring of 481 BCE, Xerxes set out from Susa for the west. He first stopped in Cappadocia, where the many contingents of the imperial army had assembled. He and his host then proceeded to Sardis. After wintering there, they headed north for the Dardanelles, the straits separating Europe and Asia. When the great king reached the sea at Abydos, he was greeted by an awesome sight, the massed squadrons of the imperial navy. Herodotus tells us that there were 1,207 war galleys and 3,000 cargo ships. The warships would have been provided by the empire's sea-going peoples. The Phoenicians, the greatest mariners of the ancient Mediterranean, constituted the core of the armada. Large contingents were also furnished by the Egyptians, Cyprians, Carians, and not least the Ionian Greeks. Each fighting vessel would have had 200 rowers and sailors, as well as 30 Persian and Saka marines. The navy could therefore have had easily as many men as the army. It also included one formidable woman. Artemisia, warrior queen of Halicarnassus, was personally commanding a little fleet of five warships. While great King Xerxes was marshalling the immense strength of his empire, the Greeks were making preparations of their own. 
The most consequential were those of the Athenians. In the middle of the 480s, a staggeringly rich vein of silver had been discovered in Athens's mines at Lorient. The Athenians had heatedly debated about what to do with this windfall. Many had wanted it divided up among the city's citizens, but the statesman Themistocles had made a successful case that the Athenians should use the silver to build 200 new warships. These warships were of the latest revolutionary design, the trireme. The dreadnought of the ancient Mediterranean world, the trireme was so named because it had 170 rowers distributed over three levels or banks of oars. It was larger and faster than all previous war galleys, carried a large complement of marines for boarding fights as well as amphibious operations, and was armed with a bow-mounted, bronze-sheathed ram to sink opposing ships. During the debates in the popular assembly, Themistocles had only been able to convince his fellow citizens to support his naval program by pointing out that Athens needed the ships in the war it was currently waging against its main Greek maritime rival, the island polis of Aegina. Yet since Themistocles was reputed to be the cleverest and most far-sighted of all the Greeks, he had undoubtedly realized these ships would be indispensable once the Persians returned in greater strength. When they did, the triremes of Themistocles proved to be the salvation of Greece. By the late 480s BCE, news of the Persian mobilization were reaching Greece. According to Herodotus, the Greeks received a vital piece of intelligence from the exiled Spartan king Demaratus. The Spartans were unique in the Greek world for having a diarchy, a rule by two kings. Demaratus had lost a bitter power struggle with his co-ruler, Cleomenes, and had been forced to take refuge at the Persian court. In the spring of 481 BCE, shortly before Xerxes left Susa for his army, Demaratus sent a message to Sparta that the Persians intended to conquer the whole of Greece. He hid this message by taking a wax writing tablet, scraping off the wax, carving the words into the wood backing, and then replacing the wax. It required the ingenuity of Gorgo, wife of King Leonidas of Sparta, to discover Demaratus's warning. Because Demaratus was well known to have had no love for those who had exiled him, and also would later serve Xerxes well and faithfully, Herodotus adds the cautionary note that he did not know if the former king sent his message out of goodwill or malign pleasure. The Greeks' immediate response to this news was entirely traditional, as well as utterly strange to our eyes. They spoke with the gods. Emissaries from all the mainland city-states rushed to Delphi, the most sacred site for all Greeks, to consult its oracle, the priestess of Apollo called the Pythia. When the Athenian representatives went before her, the Pythia's words could not have been more terrifying and dreadful. Athens was doomed to complete destruction, she declared, and the Athenians must flee to the ends of the earth. Just before the horrified representatives are about to depart, they are advised by a sympathetic Delphian to approach the priestess again, this time as suppliants bearing laurel branches. When they did so, they received a less sinister and much more enigmatic answer. Vainly doth Pallas strive to appease great Zeus of Olympus. Words of entreaty are vain, and cunning counsels of wisdom. Nonetheless, a reed I will give thee again, of strength adamantine. All shall be taken and lost, that the sacred border of Kekrops holds in keeping today. 
and the dales divine of Scythiron. Yet shall a wood-built wall by Zeus all-seeing be granted, unto the triton born, a stronghold for thee and thy children. Bide not still in thy place, for the host that cometh from landward, cometh with horsemen and foot, but rather withdraw at his coming, turning thy back to the foe. Thou yet shalt meet him in battle. Salamis, Isle Divine, tis writ that children of women, thou shalt destroy one day, in the season of seed-time or harvest. The words of the Delphic Oracle to the Athenians present modern readers of Herodotus with special difficulties of interpretation. In particular, how did the Pythia know that the crucial naval battle would take place off the island of Salamis more than a year before it actually took place? Unless we, like the ancient Greeks, believe that the priestess of Apollo could see into the future, we need to come up with some rational explanation. One possibility advanced by some modern historians is that the Pythia, who would have been a very well-educated, very well-connected, and very well-informed woman, had analyzed the situation and determined that Salamis, an island squarely situated in what could be called Athenian home waters, was the most logical place for a great clash between the Persian and Greek navies. I think this explanation is possible, but not entirely convincing. As we'll see, the Athenians were determined to stop the Persians well before they reached the vicinity of their city. The Battle of Salamis was forced on them by events. I think the most plausible explanation is that the detail regarding Salamis was an invention that entered the historical record after the Persian invasion. Almost as soon as it was over, the invasion became Athens's national epic, and the decisive Battle of Salamis the city's proudest moment. As a result, the Athenians modified the original words of the Delphic Oracle in order to build up the drama and the near-mythical status of the defeat of the Persians. When Herodotus came to write his Historia around the 430s BCE, his Athenian sources provided him with a modified oracle. But what I think is much more important than the actual words of the Delphic Oracle was the utter seriousness with which the Athenians accepted them. The Pythia's pronouncement provoked yet another heated debate in Athens's popular assembly. Various interpretations of it were advanced, debated, dismissed. Then Themistocles intervened. The wood-built wall, he argued, was a reference to the city's new-built fleet, while divine Salamis pointed to a great victory at sea. His argument carried the day. The Athenians, Herodotus writes, resolved that they would put their trust in heaven and meet the foreign invader of Hellas with the whole power of their fleet, ships and men, and with all other Greeks that were so minded. I would like to point out one more thing about this story. Just like the Spartans' decision to wait for the end of the Carnea festival before marching to Marathon, the Athenians' reaction to the Delphic Oracle shows just how important religion was to the ancient Greeks. Today, we treat the Olympian gods as little more than fodder for young adult novels, comic books, and action movies. For the ancient Greeks, these gods were at the heart of a sophisticated and very old system of beliefs. But Greek religion was more than just beliefs. In the absence of nationalism and political ideologies, it functioned as the main source of personal and group identities. In an age before science and the scientific method, it was the primary way to understand and explain both the natural and the man-made world. We should therefore take Herodotus at his word that by deciding to fight the Persians, 
the Athenians were genuinely convinced they were moving according to a divine will. In the autumn of 481 BCE, word reached Greece that Xerxes and his army had arrived in Sardis. The Greeks who were determined to resist the Persians, in Herodotus's formulation, all the Greeks that had the better purpose for Hellas assembled to begin laying out a common course of action. The historian does not tell us exactly which city-states attended, but we can confidently surmise that Athens and Sparta were there. Moreover, Sparta had long dominated the region of southern Greece called the Peloponnese. It had built an alliance called the Peloponnesian League that embraced most of this region's city-states. These allies would have followed Sparta's lead and sent envoys to the conference. These anti-Persian Greeks, we can perhaps even call them the Greek resistance, decided to take three measures. First, they agreed to end their rivalries with each other, notably the conflict between Aegina and Athens. Second, they sent spies to Sardis to discover the strength of the Persian invasion force. Finally, they dispatched emissaries to seek out more allies in the far-flung reaches of the Greek world. Of these three actions, only the first was successful. The spies sent to Sardis were almost immediately captured by the Persians. Instead of having them executed, great King Xerxes ordered the spies to be shown everything they desired to see and then released. The king calculated that the spies' report would help to intimidate and demoralize the Greeks. The search for allies was an abject failure. Everywhere the envoys went, their pleas for help were either deflected by polite excuses or rebuffed outright. In the end, the only military help that reached the resistance from the wider Greek world was a single warship from Croton in southern Italy. In fact, of the hundreds of city-states of mainland Greece itself, the vast majority chose not to join the resistance. Instead, they cast their lot with the Persians. So many poleis sent earth and water, the traditional tokens of submission, to the great king that the Greeks coined a new word, medizo, to medize, or to join the Medes. The Medizers included some of the strongest and most important states in mainland Greece. Thebes, arguably the third most powerful polis after Athens and Sparta, and the dominant power of the region of central Greece called Boeotia, teetered on the brink of Medizing throughout the summer of 480 BCE. The city-state of Argos, Sparta's greatest rival in the Peloponnese, did not join the Persians outright. Instead, it declared itself neutral and refused to contribute any hope lights or ships to the resistance forces. In the end, the resistance would include just 31 Greek city-states. After the failure of the spies and the search for allies, the Greeks of the resistance met again, this time to plan their first concrete military action against the invaders. By now, the Persians were poised to cross over the Dardanelles from Asia to Europe. This second meeting was galvanized by the appearance of delegates from Thessaly, the expansive region of northern Greece bordering the semi-Greek kingdom of Macedon. The Thessalians declared they were willing to join the resistance, but only if the southern Greeks sent a substantial force to help defend their country. Herodotus does not report on the deliberations of the resistance, but we can hazard some guesses about its content and direction. By making a stand in Thessaly, the Greeks could keep the Persians well away from their core territories. Moreover, the Thessalians were the finest horsemen in Greece. Their aid against the Persian cavalry 
would be invaluable. The resistance therefore dispatched an army of 10,000 men to Thessaly. This force was led by two commanders, Euinetos, a senior Spartan officer, and Themistocles of Athens. Duly joined by the Thessalian cavalry, the Greeks marched up to the Vale of Tempe, which was the main route connecting Macedon with Thessaly. No sooner were the Greeks and Thessalians in position when they received an urgent message from King Alexander of Macedon. Although he had long been a Persian vassal, the Macedonian monarch sympathized with the resistance. He disclosed to the Greeks and Thessalians the vast numbers of the approaching Persian soldiers and ships. If they fought, he warned, they would be overwhelmed. He advised them instead to flee. But even more persuasive than King Alexander's advice was the Greek commander's shocked realization that the Vale of Tempe was not the only way the enemy could enter Thessaly. The Persians could march through two other passes, easily outflank their force, and attack it from behind. Herodotus states that the southern Greeks immediately retreated from the Vale and returned home. Abandoned by the resistance, the Thessalians joined the Persians. The Tempe expedition was hastily conceived and badly executed. It revealed that the Greek resistors had committed themselves to a war that surpassed anything they had ever experienced before in terms of scale and sophistication. For the Athenians, Spartans, and the other southern Greeks, Thessaly represented alien territory, well beyond their normal areas of operation. Their knowledge of the terrain of northern Greece was so poor, they had no idea that the enemy could easily turn the Tempe position. If their 10,000 troops had stood their ground and entrenched themselves in the Vale, they would have been no match for Xerxes' grand army, and they could not have been easily nor quickly reinforced. Tempe was too far away from the resistance's main bases in southern Greece. Finally, and most importantly, the Greeks had made no provisions to stop the Persian navy, which posed just as dangerous a threat as the army. The Greeks of the resistance, however, seemed to have learned valuable lessons from the Tempe debacle. Their next effort to stop the Persian invasion would take place at the Pass of Thermopylae and would prove far more effective. We will look at this effort and the resulting Battle of Thermopylae in the next part of the podcast.